Welcome to Preaching and Preachers, a weekly podcast devoted to those who preach and to the task of preaching itself. I'm your host, Jason Allen, president of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Today, I want to welcome Ronnie Kurtz to the podcast. Ronnie serves as the assistant director of marketing here at Midwestern Seminary, as well as managing editor of For the Church and as an assistant professor of Christian studies here at Midwestern Seminary and Spurgeon College. He also serves as a pastor at Emmaus Church in Kansas City as well. Today, he joins me as guest host as we discuss my new book, Letters to My Students, Volume 2, on pastoring. Ronnie, welcome to Preaching and Preachers. Thanks for having me back. It's good to be with you and excited to talk about this new book. Yeah, it's a little self-serving, I guess, to have you back to interview me. But uh, <laughs> Hey, I'm, I'm honored. Uh, you're always studio quality material, regardless of whether you're uh, <laughs> asking the questions or answering them, but it's good to be here with you and to talk about my new book, and uh, who knows where the Lord made may lead the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we, uh, like you said, we are going to talk about the new book, Letters to My Students. And I must say, after talking about uh, talking with you about uh, succeeding at seminary, you, you've been a busy man. Two great books in one year. You know, you know these things work. They, they sometimes take a while to come together and come out. Sometimes they, they come together you know, rather quickly and come out rather quickly. So I, I guess in the grand strategy of things, it's probably not best to have two books come out so close together. I actually have a couple more books coming out here pretty soon as well, <laughs> like like in the later summer. And so I'm not sure all this makes sense in uh, in the grand world of grand strategy of, of book publishing, but delighted to uh, get to participate in these projects. Hey, and as uh, a fan of Dr. Jason K. Allen, we're, we're thankful for the book, so keep them coming. <laughs> well, the next two are uh, just projects I edited that um, uh, books, frankly, by Spurgeon and uh, on Spurgeon and That's right, uh, yeah. on, on prayer and then Spurgeon on suffering. And so anyway, look forward to those being out as well. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's actually a great segue. Uh, we didn't even talk about this, but that's a perfect segue into kind of the first question I have about this new book, uh, Letters to My Students, Volume 2. Uh, before we jump into the specifics, uh, I want to hear, let's talk a little bit more about the book in general. So speaking of Spurgeon, the, titles of, the title of this series is Letters to My Students. If anyone has ears to hear, they should know that that's a play off of Spurgeon's lectures to my students. And you actually discuss this relationship, why you titled it this way in the beginning of the book. And I'd love to talk about that here. So why name the series off of Spurgeon's lectures to my students, letters to my students? Yeah, look, it is a clearly a play on and really personalization of uh, Spurgeon's book, Le- his book, Lectures to My Students. And then mine, letters to my students. So let me start with the uh, the easier side of it, then, then elaborate a touch on the second part. Uh, letters, because of many of these topics, chapters, questions, began as letters. Yeah. Now, now, more conventionally speaking, as emails. But over the years that I've received from pastors, from students, from friends, uh, how do you deal with this issue? How do you deal with that issue? How to prepare for this scenario? How to prepare for that scenario? And so over time, you, you begin to build up an inventory, frankly, of mm-hmm. content and of answers, and, uh, and then you, you realize also what is not not merely a, a niche interest or niche question, but what is sort of a, a perennial yeah. question or a perennial issue. And so that's why the word letters. Now, now the direct connection to Spurgeon goes back to my appreciation and love for Charles Spurgeon. Uh, I recount in the opening portion of the book the fact that when I became a, a believer shortly thereafter and began a sense of call to ministry— and wrestling through all these different aspects of it and what it means and what it doesn't mean and, and what one should do if one is sensing a call to ministry. Uh, I was given a copy of lectures to my students by a friend who was a couple of years older than I am and a couple of years deeper down the road of minute, farther down the road of ministry than I was. And it was a very helpful book. And at that juncture in my life, it was most helpful around the, the very idea of a call to ministry. Mm-hmm. And how do you know if you're called to ministry? 
but more broadly, it just became a resource that I could look to and point uh, point friends and, and other ministry participants to over the years. And so, look, there's a deep, deep appreciation for Charles Spurgeon. I'm on this campus. We're recording the Spurgeon Library, <laughs> the home of Spurgeon College. And uh, obviously, we have a, a deep appreciation for Charles Spurgeon here. In some ways, that is uh, certainly beyond my personal appreciation, but uh, it, it is no less than that, and it's also an institutional appreciation. We house the Spurgeon Library, more than 6,000 artifacts, and so it just all made sense. Yeah. And so here we are talking about Volume 2 love on it. pastoring. Yeah, well, I love lectures to my students and, and have loved—I just actually recently finished in, in the past couple of days this volume, a Volume 2 of Letters to My Students, and just so enjoyed it. Uh, one of the things that I enjoyed when I read Volume 2 I honestly thought that the introduction was worth the price of the book alone. In, in the introduction, you talk about why you admire pastors, and I thought it was a really moving section. I think it is valuable to discuss that idea even on this particular episode simply because, let's just face it, it's been a bit of a rough year and a half for a lot of pastors. And I, I bet, I'd be willing to bet that there are some pastors listening to this episode right now who could potentially use some encouragement. So I would love to talk about that introduction. Why do you have such a deep admiration for local church pastors? You know, as you ask me this question as we record this, uh, this interview, in recent days I was at Mount Rushmore hmm. uh, with my family, and we got to do a little junk it up uh, towards Mount Rushmore and then <laughs> sweeping through Yellowstone. It was just a really wonderful little road trip as a family. At Mount Rushmore, of course, you have four presidents chiseled there. Uh, in the Black Hills. And uh, you, you have three that are kind of expected, uh, Washington and Jefferson, and then Lincoln, kind of expected, and then and then Theodore Roosevelt. Hmm. And okay, and if you're not historically informed, you may wonder why this president from the early 20th century, his face is on Mount Rushmore, and then why was that decision made really shortly after his presidency? Well, Roosevelt was a man of action. Uh, he, he was a man of consequence. He really lifted America up onto the international stage. He, you know, he's known to take on, you know, uh, the big corporations and the rich. And just he was a man of constant action, always in motion. And so to read biographies on Roosevelt uh, is to be not only informed but entertained mm. and even inspired. Now, I, I, I share that by way of, uh, of anecdote here personally because I begin the book talking about that great quote by Roosevelt about the man in the arena. And Roosevelt says this, really reflecting on the burden of leadership. He says, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming but who does actually strive to the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat." So when I read that quote, and I thought about that quote when I was gazing up at Churchill's face, excuse me, at Roosevelt's face, I think about pastors hmm. because they are in the ultimate arena. And it's easy to be a hypothetical pastor. It's easy to be an armchair pastor. It's easy to be critical of pastors. But to actually be in the arena amongst God's people week in and week out and to often have nothing to give 
but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. And to expend oneself for such a great cause, it it it, it evokes within me and from me tremendous admiration. Mm. So they are there. As in, I, I won't rehash this whole chapter here to answer your question, but pastors are called by God to this work. That is a noble calling. Uh, pastors are ministers of the Word of God, and it is work to day in and day out study the Word of God and teach and preach the Word of God. Pastors are held to a higher level of accountability, and I respect them for that. Pastors are called to tend the flock of God, which is prone to wayward and sin and distraction and so many other challenges, but they are there standing in the gap for the people of God. And so I admire pastors, the, those who are well-known, those who aren't, those who are young, those who are old, those who are pastoring in major churches in major cities, those who are pastoring a small congregation at the fork of a dirt, dirt road. Mm-hmm. I admire pastors. And so this book, that sentiment really carries through this whole book. Yeah, and you can, you can feel that when you read it. You, you can feel that this, this is written by someone who truly does love pastors. And, and I really appreciated that throughout. I think that is so great. Let's turn to discuss something you said in chapter one. In, in chapter one, you discuss uh, how you phrase it, the minister and his calling. And in that chapter, you say that the notion of calling, which is something you and I have talked about before, I think is so important, uh, can be misunderstood. You even say that it's often a misunderstood concept. And so I would love for you to just kind of touch on what you mean by the notion of calling being a misunderstood concept. Well, we could go a number of different ways with that question. Um, First of all, it, it has historically been misunderstood, even within Protestantism, as as being reserved really for the, uh, the spiritual realm. Yeah. And uh, look, we understand in, in God's broader work the notion of vocation. And uh, look, you can glorify God. Indeed, you should glorify God. If you're a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker, as the saying goes, as opposed to one who's, who's a, a member of the cloth, you know, a member of the clergy. Um, and so, look, I, I rejoice in the mechanic, the doctor, the school teacher. Um, I rejoice in the person working in the factory, the person cutting hair for a living. Uh, one can be called in that and, 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 and equipped to that and inclined towards that. Now, when we get into the, um, the realm of local church service, there is a, 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 a calling as well, clearly a scriptural calling, where God sets apart ministers for his service. Now, I've written about this at length in uh, my book, Discerning Your Call to Ministry, and uh, touched on as well in volume one here, so I won't get too much into the depth there. But I think, I think there are a couple of ways that we should remind ourselves here, calling is often misunderstood. A, by reserving it only for the spiritual realm. But as it relates to this book, I'm focusing primarily on the spiritual realm. B, by seeing it as a general sense of calling to ministry, but the details really aren't of concern to God. I don't believe that one bit. I believe God not only calls a person to ministry in a general sense, but it calls them specifically. He gifts them in a specific way. He sets them on a trajectory for ministerial service that is specific to them, to their life station, their gifts, their experiences, their training, and so forth. And then as we follow the all of Christ, the life of ministry, over the years and over the decades, we are responsible to continue to pursue that calling. In other words, I once heard someone say to me, and this is not like a one-off line, this is an actual developed school of thought, that, that like God calls one to ministry, yes, but what you do within that calling is really up to you, whether you go to this church or that church, whether you're in a you know, theological institution, local church, some sort of nonprofit work, it's really up to you. God just sets you apart for ministry, like kind of puts you in a category. And I don't think we see that from Scripture at all. I think we see a specific calling and then a, a leadership by the Holy Spirit and in concert with scriptural revelation and in concert with wise counsel that actually points you to specific places of service for specific seasons yeah. and unto a specific people. 
that that is so good. And, and you have you have addressed the notion of calling uh, in a number of places. And so I would point listeners to especially discerning your call to ministry. I think is such a helpful a helpful little book. I, I want to stick in the early chapters. Uh, in chapter two, you deal with uh, the ever important task of preaching. Anyone who knows you was not surprised to see that come up early. We we know you're a homiletics man. And in in that chapter, uh, the minister in his pulpit, you even go as far as to say that preaching is priority number one. What what makes you say this? Well, first of all, let let me phrase the question this way, or or, or pose the question this way. How do you know you're a pastor? How does one know that he's an elder, as opposed to just being a nice guy, as as opposed to just having, let's say, an an instinct or inclination towards chaplaincy-type work? As far as having a general sense of appreciation for the people of God and the things of God, I think first and foremost, you know you are a pastor if you're doing the work of a pastor. You know you're an elder if you're doing the work of an elder. And the work of an elder, as spelled out in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, the work is first and foremost the work of preaching. In fact, if you look at the qualifications for pastoral ministry, um, vis-a-vis the uh, qualifications for, for the diaconate, you know, the ability to teach the Word of God, it mm-hmm. is the qualification, beyond the character qualifications, the, the one qualification of gifting or, or service that one must have. And so I think we can, we can clearly see from the qualifications of the elder that the, the call to teach and the ability to teach is indeed mark number one and thus priority number one. More broadly, I think as we look at the, um, the New Testament church and what does the church do when it gathers, what do the people of God do when they assemble? They receive the preaching of the Word of God, whether it's we see that uh, in the book of Acts, of course, descriptively, but then we see that as well, like when you come to the pastoral epistles and, and Paul is instructing Timothy and Titus what the church is to do. And mm-hmm. you come together for the preaching of the Word of God. You read the Word of God and you give explanation to it. And so it's priority number one. And so, and then I guess I would say finally here to kind of button up this, this answer, at least, is, is this word, Ronnie. When we look more broadly as well in the New Testament about what believers need to grow in Christ— they need the pure milk of the Word. They need the teaching of the Word. Everything from the book of James to First Peter to, to the, the, the corpus of, of the Pauline works, um, we see this continued emphasis on receiving the Word of God. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we see the emphasis on the preaching of the Word of God for the conversion of sinners as well. That's right. So, so yeah, I mean, there's a lot we could say here, but, but that, that's what the pastor does. And he does more than that, yes. Uh, we need to have a well-rounded ministry, of course. But, like, if I get nothing else right in my week as a pastor, I want to get right the preparation and the proclamation of the Word of God. Absolutely. That, that, that is so good. And, and you're right. that The pastor is more well-rounded than that. And we'll get to that. You do get to that in the book. We'll get, I want to save some of that for the second episode. Uh, but, but directly tied to the pastor as preacher, which is just so—I'm so thankful— for men like you who still voice that. Uh, pastors are expected to be so many things these days, and they're entrepreneurials, they're, uh, you know, they're, they're self-help experts, but it's so important to maintain the idea of a pastor as a man of the word. And part of that, being a man of the word, is being a man of the study. Mm-hmm. And that's where you go next in the book. And uh, look, I have studious inclinations, uh, the, the less Nice way to say that is I'm a nerd, so uh, I was glad to see a chapter on the man and the study. But I would love to talk about that here, uh, especially you, you talk about it in concert with uh, just being a student. The pastor is still a student. And you talk about optimizing sermon study. You talk about optimizing uh, research. And so I'd love to just turn that over to you. What, do you, what does it mean to be uh, a, a man of the study? 
Well, first and foremost, I want to say on the front end of this answer that we need to set ourselves up for success in this regard. And by success, I mean uh, a, a manageable yeah. workload and responsibility list. And look, I look back, you know, 20 years ago when I entered my first pastorate as a, as a very young man, and uh, it was, you know, a sweet church. I love the church. We, we remain in contact with the congregation. And uh, it was just kind of expected. That church expected it, but the average kind of suburban slash rural church expected then that a guy like me would preach every Sunday morning and preach every Sunday night and, and oh, by the way, preach and, or, or lead a Bible study Wednesday night. And then me being, you know, not content with that, I, I layered on a couple more things. I layered on a <laughs> uh, like a, a chapel Sunday school class on Sunday morning. And I layered on a, a, a men's Saturday morning Bible study. So before I knew it, I had like five preparations yeah. every week. And, and of course, you know, you, you triage those. Not all are equally important. And so you give more time to Sunday morning and kind of work through it. But I, I live like in frantic sermon preparation mode, year after year after year, frantic sermon preparation mode. And I look back, frankly, I don't think that was that wise <laughs> of me looking back. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't look at a generation now that often preaches, you know, let's say you know, less frequently than I did 20 years ago and think they're slackers. I don't. I kind of envy them, frankly. I wish I were in that, would have been in their position 20 years ago. But, but I do look back and see there were some good things that happened in my life then. Um, I had to lock myself away in my study. Mm. And I had a church that was very supportive of that. They gave me tremendous space to study. Pre-social media, the internet was, of course, there. Blogs were there in the early 2000s, but, but it, it wasn't the same. And, and even email wasn't. The, of course, we had email, but like you weren't going to email on your phone. And so you, kinda, you, know, you did your old dial-up and checked your email a time or two a day. It was just a different world. And so, I mean, I would routinely give 30 hours a week to, to study for all these different, these different sermons and, and lessons I was teaching. And, uh, and for me, looking back, God blessed through that, not just then, but in the future for me, because it, it, it really put me in a position to dig deep wells in the Scripture. And so I look back and I kind of say, man, how in the world did I do that? It probably wasn't wise that I was attempting to do that, but I'm actually glad I yeah. did do that. And so God was good in that sense. So you're, we're talking about the study today, and I want to say first and foremost, your amount of time in the study needs to correlate to the amount of times you're actually expected to teach or preach. Mm -hmm. And so it may not be that you need 30 hours a week, as I did 20 years ago, but you need a good 10 to 15 hours a week based upon what your teaching and preaching expectations are. What is more, every person is different in their gifting. Every person is different in their training. Every person is different in, in how quickly they can synthesize data. Uh, every person is different in, uh, in what that congregation actually desires and expects and needs. And so I don't want to just, you know, throw out a one-size-fits-all answer here, but I do want to say, ultimately, you're having to ask yourself fundamental questions like, am I honoring the Lord with how I'm handling His Word? Have I studied this text well enough to know that I have not left unresolved any essential questions about it? Now, key word there, essential, <laughs> because you can always chase rabbits. That's right but any essential question about the text. Have I studied this text well enough to know, or well enough to be able, that if my wife were to ask me over dinner, what are you preaching on Sunday? I could say the verses, and I could give her a one-paragraph answer as to what they mean. Mm -hmm. um, and so those are the types of questions you're having to ask yourself. And then beyond, like, do I know these verses? Have I been able to internalize these verses? Have I been able to produce from these verses some sermon notes or sermon manuscript or something in between? that I can bring to bear in the life of the church that I am confident is faithful to the text and honors the Lord? So those are some of the conceptual questions you're asking and you're wrestling with as you study. 
Um, you need to know yourself. Do you study better in the morning or at night? Do you study better like when you're locked away in a, you know, a room with no windows? Or do you study better kind of in a Starbucks setting where, where there's a stereo of noise that no one's interrupting you personally? Um, and you need to monitor those things and, and, and how you prepare. But the, 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 the goal is to never enter the pulpit unprepared. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's so good. And knowing yourself is so important. You highlight that in this particular chapter. And one of the things as we turn um, into deeper portions of the book in the next episode, just being seeped in the word is going to end up bearing fruit in so many areas of pastoral ministry. If you're in a counseling session, well, you might be a touch more nervous about that counseling session if you have no clue what the word says. But if you've been seeped in the word, I mean, counsel people from the word. Right. And look, you know, oftentimes you are looked upon, especially if you're in a more rural setting where you may be, you know, the, the only Baptist minister, perhaps right. even the only evangelical minister around, you're looked upon as the, you know, the resident theological expert, <laughs> or there may be the resident expert on everything. And um, on the one hand, that, that's a, you know, impossible mantle to carry. But on the other hand, you probably do, or at least you should know the word better than anyone else in town. And you can rest in that. Yeah. You're not a perfect minister, but you are an informed one. And you can rest in that. And, and, and you will find yourself pulling from that reservoir of, of biblical truth, both in these counseling sessions, but also in the pulpit, is, even as you're preaching. That's right. And your mind goes to a place it did not go during the week, but in that moment of preaching, it goes to it, biblically speaking, and you can amplify your sermon. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Uh, Dr. Kurtz, uh, that's, a, um, that's a foreshadowing Close. of where you'll be Three here weeks. very soon. Uh, <laughs> Ronnie, until then. Um, thank you for helping me host today. It's been a, a fun and fast-paced 22 minutes here. But, man, it's been good to talk and reflect together on my new book, Letters to My Students on Pastoring. Proud to have it out with B&H Publishers. And uh, good to reflect with you on the preaching and one's calling and sermon preparation and, uh, and joy. Boy, you know, why I, why I respect and admire pastors. Thank you for being with us today and for listening to Preaching and Preachers. For more information, go to my website, jasonkallen.com. That's jasonkallen.com.